Thank you all for um, well, inviting me and uh, coming out on this uh, bitterly cold day. Uh, it's nice to see some familiar faces and uh, look forward to meeting some of you that I don't know uh, afterwards. Um, this is kind of at the pure metaphysics end of the work I do. There's uh, not really any philosophy of science or philosophy of physics in here. Um, the project was a, a kind of two-part project um, responding to this quite influential paper of Jonathan Schaffer's uh, Quidistic Knowledge uh, in 2005 uh, in Phil Studies. I think it was also printed in somewhere else, but I can't remember, I can't remember where or when. Um, so it was a single paper that was a reply to uh, Schaffer. Uh, it got big and unwieldy, so it split into two parts. There was a part on laws of nature. So Schaffer argues against uh, the view that laws of nature are necessary. Um, and I, I like necessitarianism, so I was defending that. And um, this response on uh, him on quiddityism started out uh, more as an afterthought, but I got um, uh, I got interested by the kind of methodological subtleties uh, that you get into. Um, Schaffer was painting it as fairly uh, straightforward, and there's a recent paper by Dustin Locke also paints the uh, methodological position around quiddityism as relatively straightforward. Um, and I think it's it's rather more subtle than that, and ties into wider issues in uh, metaphysics of modality. Um, so what what what's Schaffer arguing? He's arguing uh, that first he argues that we should be contingent about laws of nature, um, and then on that assumption he's arguing uh, that we should be quiddityists. So quiddityism, I'm just I'm going to read some of these definitions up from the handout. Quiddityism is the theoretical acceptance of merely quiddistic differences between possible worlds, where a merely quiddistic difference between worlds is a difference that is only with respect to which properties play which roles. And I'm going to restrict attention to sparse properties or natural properties uh, for the duration of this. The reason for that is that uh, usually quiddityists don't give uh, abundant properties, their own quiddities. Um, quiddities are, are there to, in, to individuate properties. They're connected to the individuation of properties. And the thought is that uh, abundant, complex properties can get individuated via their sparse constituents um, or yeah, as kind of structural universals and where, where the uh, sparse properties are non-structural. So I mean, the, the intuitive motivation for this question, the question about quiddityism, is, is whether properties could have behaved differently. So could could mass have played the charge role and vice versa? Could could everything have been the same in terms of what happens, except that it's uh, the property of mass that's uh, behaving like charge, that's playing the same role as the charge plays in the laws of nature, and vice versa. And so. Uh, Quiddityists say that there are that, that the world in which mass plays the charge role is a genuine alternative possibility. Antiquidityists deny there's any genuine alternative possibility uh, corresponding to these switchings of roles, properties. Um, so I want to distinguish quiddityism here, uh, which I've uh, phrased in terms of uh, merely quiddistic differences between worlds, from the view that there are these things called quiddities. So quiddities, if they exist, are meant to be special kinds of properties or properties that do the individuating work. 
So what makes a property like mass the property that it is, is that it has some particular quiddity, the, the mass quiddity. Um, and then presumably these quiddity swapping scenarios that the quiddityist envisages are going to be cases where the quiddities get swapped. So where um, the quiddities are swapped around between the roles. So um, the property that uh, plays the mass role in our world, that quiddity is associated with the charge role in another world. So in that sense, it's the same property that does one thing in this world and a different thing in the other world, because liquidity um, determines the property identity. Uh, but you don't need quiddities on board um, to be a quiddities, as I've defined it. Um, or rather, it's uh, an open question whether you need quiddities uh, to, to ground quiddityism. Um, so there's this position that I'm going to talk about in, a, in, a, in due course um, that Justin Locke calls uh, Quiddityism without quiddities, name of his paper, um, came out last year in Phil Studies. Um, and he says we don't need quiddities to individuate properties. Properties can be individuated by what he calls bare numerical identity. Uh, and this really amounts to a kind of rejection of uh, the questions about individuation of properties. They just are individuated and there's nothing more to say. Um, but he still thinks that a view that uh, individuates properties in that bare way uh, can ground quiddityism. So there can still be um, differences, quiddistic differences between worlds, just that those quiddistic differences between worlds don't involve swapping of these quiddity properties. And there are reasons not to like uh, quiddities, even if you uh, like quiddityism. Um, so one worry you might have is a kind of regress worry. Quiddities are introduced to do some metaphysical work, uh, grounding the individuality of properties. Um, but quiddities are properties themselves, the properties of properties. Uh, so how do they get individuated? Do we need a kind of metaquidity to individuate the quiddities? Um, presumably not. Otherwise, we'd end up with a kind of ever-ascending chain of, of, of quiddities. Presumably, we don't want. But if we don't need uh, metaquidities to individuate quiddities, why can't we individuate properties themselves, the first order properties, in the same way that quiddities get individuated? So if, if quiddities are needed to individuate first order properties, there's a problem about how they get individuated. It looks like quiddities have, haven't really helped. They've just um, pushed the individuation worry back a stage. I'm not going to push that kind of worry because um, I don't think the best version of quiddityism is going to involve positing quiddities. So set quiddities aside and uh, just um, take quiddityism to be this view about uh, different about there being possible worlds that differ only with respect to which properties play which roles. I'll go into a little more detail in, on the kind of which which is which kind of locution uh, shortly. One, one more thing I want to set aside. Um, there's this approach that I'm going to call cheap quiddityism by analogy with a view about uh, view about hexaitism. Um, an alternative to hexaitism that some people have called cheap hexaitism. Hexaitism being the idea that uh, that kind of an analog theory to quiddityism, but for individuals rather than for properties. So hexaitists think there are possible worlds that differ only with respect to which individuals um, uh, play which qualitative roles, have which qualitative profiles. And cheap hexaitism says uh, there aren't really any differences between worlds. 
um, there aren't any differences between possible worlds with respect to which individuals um, play which qualitative roles. Um, but we can talk as though there are, because we can use a counterpart theory uh, and say that uh, individuals can have counterparts within their own possible world. And so uh, I get to be, um, I get to possibly have been David um, because uh, me and David bear the counterpart relationship to one, one another within the actual world. So likewise, you could have a uh, cheap version of quiddityism that says properties really only exist in one possible world. Um, nonetheless, they uh, bear counterpart relations to other properties. Presumably, the counterpart relation is going to be based some, somehow on how the properties behave. Um, and so we can have a counterpart theory for properties, and we can say that properties can have counterparts within the, their own world. And then um, uh, it's true that mass could have been charged, and charge could have been mass, because mass and charge are counterparts within the actual world. And this is, I think this is an, in, an interesting approach. And uh, Mark Heller, in the journal Philosophy article from 1998, uh, develops it um, in interesting directions. Uh, I'm not going to have anything to say about this approach today. The kind of version of quiddityism that Schaffer is interested in, de in defending is not this cheap quiddityism, it's a more full-blooded quiddityism. Okay, that, that's all I have to say about cheap quiddityism. Um, so wh why should we adopt quiddityism? Um, Sean of this commitment to quiddities. Um, uh, what's, what's the point? So Schaffer suggests uh, two arguments in, in this paper, quidistic knowledge. Um, and I think both uh, rely on contingentism uh, to have any force. Um, so I, I'm not going to go into them in any detail. Um, one reason I'm not going to go into them in any detail is because I think that uh, antiquidatists, whom these arguments are presumably meant to move, are generally not going to be contingentists about laws of nature. Necessitarianism and contingentism do. Uh, form, sorry, necessitarianism and antiquidatism form a very attractive theoretical combination. Um, Schaffer thinks he's disposed of necessitarianism, uh, already by the time he gets to talking about quiddities in this paper, quiddityism in this paper. Um, I have separate arguments against that. Um, but really I'm interested in the antiquidity, so in the, uh, responses that Schaffer has to antiquidatist arguments against quiddityism. Um, because I think those arguments are good, um, or at least much better than Schaffer makes them out to be. Um, yeah. I, I, in the end, I don't think they, I'm going to say I don't think they're conclusive, but I do think they're better than Schaffer makes them out to be. So I'm interested in these negative arguments against criticism more than these positive arguments. Okay, so the first of these arguments I'm going to be discussing against uh, criticism get used by antiquidatists and which Schaffer wants to uh, rebut is uh, an epistemological argument um, which is that quidditism leads to scepticism about the, the quidistic subject matter. Say a bit more about what I mean in a minute. Um, so if, if quidditism is right uh, and there really are two uh, multiple uh, worlds that differ only with respect to which properties play which roles, how are we ever going to know which of those worlds is ours? There are going to be many worlds which are just like ours in terms of the, how the properties behave, but it will be different properties behaving that way in, in these worlds. Um, 
and how are we to know which of these many worlds is ours? It's, it seems uh, like we're not going to have um, any knowledge of which properties play which roles because it seems like all of the evidence that science gives us um, is evidence about the roles themselves, about which roles, which causal or which nomological roles get played rather than which properties it is that does do the playing of those roles. Um, so Schaffer gives a um, kind of argument from uh, indiscriminability, you might call it, against criticistic knowledge and then criticizes that argument. I've, I've given a slightly different uh, version of the argument, um, partly because I'd be interested in people's uh, feedback on this uh, kind of way of running indiscriminability arguments in metaphysics. Um, so it appeals to uh, the Lewisian theory of subject matters. Um, so I'm not going to explain it in detail. Basically, the Lewisian theory of subject matters treats the subject matter as a partition on the set of worlds. So the subject matter is a partition. It divides the whole set of worlds into um, cells in such a way that every world is in exactly one cell. Um, and you can think of the cells as being as containing only worlds which are alike with respect to that subject matter. So instead of using a partition to represent the subject matter, we could have equivalently represented it by an equivalence relation um, alike with respect to the subject matter, um, and that generates a partition. Um, so the partitions and equivalence relations correspond one to one. Um, so that that's how we model subject matters, and then we say that these subject matters are orthogonal to one another if each cell of one subject matter intersects each cell of the other. So, but intuitively, fix which cell you're in with uh, of one subject matter. Fix how things are with respect to one subject matter, and all the possibilities still remain open uh, with respect to the other subject matter. And that's a, that's a kind of notion of strong independence, strong modal independence uh, that we can use in this uh, sceptical argument. So I've got the argument um, written down here. I'll, I'll, I'll read it out for the, the benefit of the recording, if nothing else. Um, so the first premise is uh, that the evidence we get from empirical observation is evidence that's wholly about uh, causal or gnomic structure. So it's about um, what roles, um, what, no, what gnomic or causal roles are filled, rather than about what fills them. Or rather, premise two says rather than about what fills them. So, um, premise two says that the uh, totality of the uh, facts about gnomic causal structure, the totality of the facts that we can get from empirical observation, uh, is wholly about the non-quadistic subject matter NQ. Um, so this is so the non-quadistic subject matter is how things are uh, non-quadistically or non-quadistically. You can think of the non-quadistic subject matter um, as the kind of purely qualitative subject matter. It's about kind of how the properties that there are in the world behave, rather than about which properties there are in the world. Um, and then we have the quadistic subject matter Q, and that's meant to be the subject matter which properties play which roles. That's the kind of gloss we have on it. Um, and the premise is that uh, the two are orthogonal. Um, 
And that goes be a little bit beyond just quidditism, uh, as stated. Um, because quidditism says there are some uh, words that differ with, just with respect to which properties play which roles. But this uh, orthogonality assumption says essentially that um, there are no restrictions at all on which properties can play which role. Any, any sparse property can play any sparse property role. But that does seem like a, the kind of assumption that quidditists are going to find attractive. Um, I mean, if you can have some property swaps, uh, what could it be that prevents you uh, having other property swaps? Um, suppose you could have some theory where you have kind of categories of property such that you can generate different possible worlds by swapping within a category, but you can't generate different possible worlds by swapping cross-category, um, swapping properties cross-category. Doesn't seem like uh, there's much motivation for that sort of view. Okay, so it follows from these premises uh, one, two, and three uh, that empirical science doesn't give us uh, any evidence that's even partly about Q. Because um, if it's wholly about, if our evidence from empirical science is wholly about NQ and Q is orthogonal to NQ, then uh, <laughs> our evidence is. <coughs> wholly not about Q, um, given the natural notion of aboutness that goes into this uh, subject matter framework. Um, so then we have uh, a couple of extra premises just to get the conclusion we want. Uh, we have no source of evidence other than empirical observation um, about any contingent subject matter. Maybe we have evidence about uh, mathematics that comes uh, um, other than from empirical investigation. Uh, but that's not a contingent subject matter. So the thought is anything that's contingent can only get out empirically. And it's contingent how things are with respect to Q. Um, if it wasn't contingent uh, which properties played which roles, um, then uh, quidditism would be false because there just wouldn't be any uh, um, quiddity swapping scenarios. There'd be exact. So the quidditist doesn't just say there is a quidditistic subject matter Q. It says that some uh, cells of Q contain uh, more than one world. Okay, um, so Schaffer's response to this sort of argument, um, a general kind of indiscriminability sceptical argument. I mean, I hope this kind of style of argument seems fairly familiar. Uh, if we were, it's kind of, here's a, here's a scenario, it's possible. If we were in that scenario, we wouldn't be able to tell that we were in that scenario as opposed to the actual scenario, so we don't know that we're not in that alternative scenario, so we don't know that we are in uh, the actual scenario. Um, so that kind of line of reasoning is familiar from uh, external world sceptical arguments, and Schaffer's response to this quidistic sceptical argument is basically to assimilate it directly to uh, external world scepticism. He says things like, any strategy for uh, dealing with external world scepticism can be uh, co-opted and used to deal with quidistic scepticism. And uh, quidistic scepticism is merely external world scepticism writ small. Um, typically, kind of flowery style. Um, I don't agree with that. Um, I think that there are significant differences between uh, the cases that make the quidistic sceptical argument much less powerful, I'm sorry, much more powerful than the external world sceptical argument. Uh, and the basic reason for that is that uh, even granting the quidditist everything um, they want to say, we're still in a very different epistemic position with respect to quiddities 
sorry, with respect to the quidistic subject matter, then um, uh, we are in an epistemic position with respect to the external world if standard views about the external world are correct. Um, so it, it's a fairly obvious response, um, really. I, I don't think that there's a huge, huge amount of deep going on here. Um, it's, it's, it's puzzling that, that Schaffer doesn't uh, note these differences to me. Um, what I want to say is, instead of being like external world scepticism in general, um, uh, quidditistic scepticism is more like a specific type of external world scepticism, say, or or rather it's more like uh, scepticism about what Lewis has called epiphenomenal rubbish. Uh, so epiphenomenal rubbish is stuff, uh, material objects that uh, are part of the actual world, but which don't interact in any way with the kind of parts of the actual world that we're familiar with. So there might be ghosts floating around here, but uh, not exerting any forces on anything in this room, not having any forces exerted on them by anything in this room, just kind of completely floating free, excuse the pun, of um, anything else that's happening. And uh, Lewis rightly says that we normally assume that there is no epiphenomenal rubbish and that we are normally take ourselves to be justified in assuming there's no uh, epiphenomenal rubbish around. Um, and I think we are. Uh, and I think for the same sort of reasons, we're justified in um, rejecting uh, the thought that there is a quidistic subject matter um, around to have uh, knowledge of. A minimal constraint I'm going to use on uh, having a quidistic knowledge is that uh, to have some quidistic knowledge, you need to have some evidence which bears on the question of which properties play which roles. So. Just a kind of assumption that to know it, to know about something, you've got to have some evidence that is that bears on that uh, quest, question. Um, so to have quidistic knowledge, we need to have some evidence that's partly about Q, the quidistic subject matter. But what could this evidence be like? Um, so the thought here is that quidditists need to uh, give some kind of positive epistemological story about how we get quidditistic knowledge. It's not enough to say that there is a quidditistic subject matter and to um, kind of assume by default that we've got a way of, of knowing it. We need to have some positive story. And uh, all of the Schaffer's claim is that the positive stories we typically give about uh, how we have knowledge of the external world carry over to knowledge of uh, quidistic subject matter. Uh, I think that's just not true. So probably the most popular, or at least my favourite response to the sceptic is a broadly externalist kind of response. Um, re reliabilism is one kind of uh, application of the externalist response. Maybe it's a little flat-footed, but there are certainly others. Um, so that kind of theory, theory say reliabilist externalist uh, response to scepticism, gets around the uh, sceptical challenge to our knowledge of the external world by maintaining that uh, what matters for uh, securing knowledge is that the uh, method by which you acquire a particular belief uh, be 
de facto reliable. I mean, the belief has to be true and it has to be justified in the right sort of way, presumably. But the way in which it's justified has to be, uh, in fact, a reliable method. And the other component, of course, um, of this actually being a successful response to, to skepticism uh, is that sense perception must, in fact, be a de facto reliable way of obtaining information about the external world. Only then would we be in the good case that externalist um, uh, response to the skeptic uh, say we're in. Um, but that posit that uh, sense perception and kind of inferences, normal kind of inferences from sense perception are in general a reliable way of obtaining information about the external world. Um, there's consilience between that assumption and the science that we get through making that assumption. So we kind of take on board uh, the kind of existence of the external world and it having the properties that we roughly, uh, that, that we normally take it to have. And from that epistemic standpoint, we do science. And then we find that science supports that uh, kind of presupposition that we made at the beginning, that uh, there are suitable information channels whereby sense perception gets us in a probabilistically reliable way uh, information about the external world. But the same kind of response to skepticism just doesn't need to get off the ground. Um, Quiddittists don't typically give any mechanism uh, analogous to sense perception and reasoning from sense perception. Uh, that's an analogous to uh, the mechanism by which we acquire our knowledge of the external world. So the way I set up the argument, there's uh, uh, two ways that quiddittists can say, you know, assuming that they've got to produce some kind of candidate for evidence about the quiddistic subject matter. Um, there's two broad ways they can do that. They can even either reject premise five, the premise that we've got no sort of evidence other than empirical evidence about a contingent subject matter, um, so in the, the, the analogy isn't perfect, but um, it, it's a, a little reminiscent of uh, Gödel's view about the epistemology, of, epistemology of mathematics. So obviously, the mathematical subject matter is a non-contingent one, whereas this, the quiddistic subject matter is supposed to be contingent. Um, but on either account, we're grasping the, the facts uh, involved through a kind of direct intellectual intuition, some kind of grasping of the facts directly without any kind of naturalistic uh, underpinning. And I'm just going to say this is as unappealing in the case of quiddittism as it is in the case of the epistemology of mathematics. Uh, it, it, it runs against the grain of uh, philosophical naturalism um, at the thought that uh, it, it rejects the idea that we can give a theory that's continuous with our scientific theories of our um, knowledge of the quiddistic subject matter. And so it, it cuts that off from uh, the rest of the scientific project. And I just, I just take it that's a bad thing. I'm not going to say much more in uh, defense of premise five. <coughs> I think a more promising approach for the uh, quiddistic take is to reject premise one. Premise one being the premise that the evidence we get from empirical observation is wholly about gnomic causal structure. So it's possible for uh, quiddittists to appeal to some kind of uh, uh, notion of acquaintance 
um, and say that um, we can become directly and unmediatedly acquainted with uh, properties directly um, in such a way, or way that reveals their, their identity um, in sense perception. And, and Bertrand Russell had a view like this, at least at some stages. Uh, so that view is that we can kind of know some quiddity, some properties by acquaintance. So maybe we are acquainted with color properties and with um, uh, textural properties and other properties that of the kind that we encounter directly in sense perception. Um, and then we just have indirect knowledge of the other quiddities. So I think this is the best route for the uh, quiddities to go. And I don't, I'm not going to say I have a knockdown argument against um, this picture. I don't really have much of an argument against this picture at all. The kind of philosophy of perception where there's this special relation of acquaintance um, is is archaic and it's unclear whether it's really uh, na any more naturalistically acceptable than uh, the kind of Gedelian intellectual intuition view. Um, another worry for it uh, is that um, it at best gives us indirect knowledge of the uh, identity of sparse properties. But that's what we are interested in. We, on the assumption that we don't uh, encounter any, we don't become acquainted with any uh, sparse properties in uh, our sense experience, we rather only become uh, acquainted with abundant properties, like colours, perhaps. Um, I mean, obviously this uh, is also going to be it's also going to be relevant whether you think that sparse properties get drawn from all the levels of nature or only from the fundamental level. Um, I'm not going to talk about that now. But um, if you think that sparse properties are drawn from a fundamental level and we don't become acquainted with them in sense of perception, then uh, they're going to be unobservable. So we're going to at best have uh, indirect um, knowledge by kind of knowledge by description of which sparse properties there are in the actual world, as opposed to knowledge by acquaintance. So I've, got, I've got a dilemma for, the, for these uh, attempts um, to get to give a positive uh, um, to, to, to respond to quidistic scepticism. Uh, if we're going to have knowledge um, of the quidistic subject matter, we need to have some evidence that's at least partly about it. So, what is this evidence like? Um, if it transcends uh, empirical science, then it's just irredeemably mysterious. But if it's uh, continuous with the process of uh, empirical science, then we're owed a kind of naturalized epistemology that successfully describes the reliable acquisition of uh, liquidistic information of the same kind that we have describing the reliable acquisition of uh, information about features of the external world. So, conclusion of this bit, uh, we can't just dismiss quidistic scepticism like Schaffer does just by associating it with external world scepticism because uh, even if, you know, if quidditism is correct, then our epistemic position with respect to the quidistic facts is going to be very different from the position that we take ourselves to be in with respect to the external world. I think, I think that's a good argument. I think it re successfully reaches the conclusion that we don't have any knowledge of the quidistic subject matter, even if there is a quidistic subject matter.
but nonetheless, as a kind of dialectical tool against uh, quiddityism, it's indecisive because quiddityists can just uh, accept the sceptical conclusion, and quiddityists often do accept the sceptical conclusion. So Kant was a quiddityist, accepting the sceptical conclusion, uh, or at least on Andre Langton's reconstruction of Kant, he was um, and did. Ray Langton herself um, is a quiddityist who accepts the sceptical conclusion, as was David Lewis. And there are a couple of other recent defenders, um, including uh, Anne Whittle, of that kind of sceptical view being kind of correct but uh, unproblematic. And Lewis uh, kind of sums up the attitude, uh, whoever promised me that I was incapable, I was capable in principle of knowing everything. In, in a way that that rhetorical question is a tiny bit unfair because um, it's not that uh, the kind of epistemological argument says kind of we should be able to know everything and here would be some subject matter about which we couldn't know everything um, so there can't be that subject matter rather it's um, that uh, if there's a subject matter around we should be capable of at least knowing something about it there shouldn't be this kind of sui generis subject matter of which we can have no knowledge at all. Well, if that's what's meant to be problematic. But still, Lewis and the others can just bite that bullet and say, it's a surprising fact that there is such a subject matter, but there is. And we'll see that there needs to be when we kind of consider global cost-benefit considerations in metaphysics. So the epistemological argument is indecisive for that reason, even if you don't think it's indecisive for some other reason. But there's a different and I think uh, stronger kind of argument against quiddityism, which Schaffer just runs together. Um, he says there's a, as if he call it a, a spin-off or a spillover or something like that of the epistemological argument. And he, he gives the impression he thinks it's nothing more than a uh, fairly uninteresting variant on um, the epistemological argument. Uh, I'm going to call it the, metaphys the methodological argument. And I'm going to use uh, the presentation of it uh, by John Hawthorne um, in an article called Structuralism from 2001. Here's how it reconstruct it. Um, we shouldn't posit theoretical complexity in our total metaphysical theory uh, that isn't needed in order to make to make sense of our best scientific theories. Um, so here I'm. I, I buy this conception of metaphysics. Uh, it's a kind of generally something called kind of naturalistic conception of metaphysics. Um, I've defended this elsewhere, and it's quite close to the conception of metaphysics that's uh, defended by Lady Manum Roth. Um, I don't think it needs to have all of the, their polemics attached to it. Um, so the basic goal of metaphysics is to build a coherent worldview that is as simple and elegant as possible while still accommodating uh, our best scientific theories. Next premise is that uh, these merely quiddistic differences between worlds that the quiddities posits, they're not needed to make sense of best science. Prem next premise, uh, merely quiddistic differences between worlds lead to increased theoretical complexity. And that premise, I think, is where the action really is, as I'll explain in a minute. But it does follow from those three premises that we shouldn't posit merely quiddistic differences between worlds, so we shouldn't be quiddists. The, 
This is very familiar. This is very similar to a familiar and uh, popular argument against uh, the existence of epiphenomenal rubbish. A theory which explains everything in the actual world um, and posits some epiphenomenal rubbish is more complex than a theory which explains everything in the actual world and then doesn't posit the additional epiphenomenal rubbish. Um, so the one with the rubbish is more complex, but no additional explanatory power is gained by having the extra complexity in the theory. So we shouldn't posit the existence of epiphenomenal rubbish. I take it that most people will buy that line of reasoning. And if you buy that line of reasoning, you should buy this line of reasoning. Of course, uh, that is if you grant what I said is a key premise, premise 10, that merely quidistic differences between worlds increase theoretical complexity of a metaphysics that includes them. So the kind of the obvious thing for quidditists to say here uh, is that um, quidditism isn't a more complex theory, that it doesn't lead to overall an overall increase in theoretical complexity. And if you're thinking about theoretical complexity as ontological complexity or kind of level of ontological commitment, that seems uh, relatively relatively plausible, especially given a version of quidditism which doesn't posit quiddities. So if you think of properties as, if you think of the existence of properties as committing you to additional ontology, as some people do, and you think of quidditism as grounded in the existence of quiddities, um, then you're going to think that uh, quidditism leads to ontological commitment. And that's explicitly um, uh, the line that Dustin Locke takes. says, uh, if quidditism would be a more complicated theory if quidditists were committed to the existence of quiddities. But they're not. Uh, we can have quidditism without quiddities. And so there's no additional ontological complexity to quidditism over anti-quidditism. Um, so the methodological argument doesn't get going. The basic response um, by a proponent of the methodological argument to this is going to be that not all theoretical complexity is ontological complexity. There's this familiar Quinean distinction between ontolo ontology and ideology, such that you can incur theoretical commitment either by having more stuff in your theory, more, more, more things, or by having more uh, primitive ideology, kind of nominalistically construed properties and relations in your theory. And quidditism might well lead to additional ideological commitment to a theory that's more complex because of the ideology it contains, even if it doesn't lead to any additional ont ontological commitment. I, I think that may well be, um, be the case. That's something that Locke doesn't consider. But we can consider it. Why um, does uh, quidditism lead to uh, additional theoretical complexity over and above um, additional ontological complexity? In getting going with answering that question, I'm going to distinguish between two ways of thinking about uh, parsimony or theoretical complexity or more generally methodology in modern metaphysics. I call them the possibility first approach as opposed to the necessity first approach. So the possibility first approach, um, the idea is that we should maximize parsimony with respect to what is possible. So the more distinct possibilities you posit in your theory, uh, the more complex your theory. 
Whereas necessity first approach locates uh, the theoretical complexity in the kind of nature and number of the necessities you have to posit. So if you have to posit kind of, um, people sometimes use the phrase brute necessities, the more brute necessities you have on board and aren't explained by anything else, the more complex your theory. And those obviously push in opposite directions. Um, uh, the more different possibilities, um, the fewer um, uh, necessary connections between um, features of those possibilities. So in particular, um, if you have quiddity swapping scenarios, um, then you don't have a necessary connection between the property mass and the role that mass actually plays. Whereas from the quiddityist perspective, the antiquiddityist has got that as a brute necessary connection. You start out with, because they're starting out with a wider range of possible worlds, the antiquiddityist is telling them to cut those down. How do you cut down the space of worlds? By introducing brute necessary connections. That's, that's the line of thinking that drives necessity first approach. So, depending on which approach you take, the burden of proof can look like it's in the opposite places. So, given possibility first approach, uh, it's down to quiddities to justify the additional theoretical complexity of having more alternative possibilities in their theory. Whereas, uh, given the necessity first approach, it's antiquiditists that have the burden of proof. They have to justify these extra uh, brute necessary connections as the, as the uh, necessity first person sees them. So, how do we decide? I mean, I don't know whether kind of you, you think you can just look at those approaches and see which is right on a kind of intuitive ground, or whether there are kind of theoretical considerations between them that I've missed. Um, it seems to me that uh, various accounts of the nature of modality uh, can be used to, to favour one or the other approach, necessity or possibility first. And these are, this is somewhat speculative, this bit, um, so I'm, I'm very keen to get feedback on it. Um, so the thought is, starting with uh, something like an, an extreme case, like Lewisian modal realism, seems that Lewisian modal realism fits better with possibility-first views than necessity-first views. The, the fundamental facts, according to uh, a natural interpretation of modal realism, are that uh, the fundamental modal facts are facts about uh, what possibilia there are and how they're arranged into worlds. And if that's right, then it's also going to apply to other kinds of heavy-duty modal realism. So I have in mind uh, my own favoured version of modal realism that treats the uh, worlds that we should be realist about as the uh, worlds of Everetti and quantum mechanics. It also applies to a uh, version of modal realism that uses different inflationary bubbles from inflationary cosmology. Um, and uh, No, Bolam and Belenkin have a paper in BJPS from 2006 uh, setting out that sort of version of modal realism. So I think either of those favour a possibility-first approach to modal metaphysics, to methodology in modal metaphysics. So at the other kind of extreme, um, from extreme realist to extreme anti-realist, uh, you get uh, Ted Sider's approach to modality, which he calls neo-conventionalism. Uh, so on that account of modality, we have a list of necessary truths. 
and um, roughly speaking, to be necessary is to follow from one of the truths on those lists, and um, to be possible is uh, for your negation to be not to be entailed by one of those necessary truths on the list. So the way Sala presents that is explicitly based around necessities. The list contains a load of necessary truths. And the more truths you add to the list, the uh, more your space of possible worlds is going to get cut down. And as a result, uh, a, th a theory which has a, co a long list is going to be a more complicated theory than a theory with a short list. So um, that favours necessity first approach, I think. So a couple of other theories um, seem to favour one or the other. In fact, both I think both these theories uh, favour the possibility first approach. Uh, what Lewis calls pictorial ersatzism, where the uh, fundamental modal facts are facts about uh, these abstract entities with internal structure, the possible worlds, um, which are pretty much like Lewis imagines possible worlds to be, except they're concrete rather than abstract. And doesn't really matter whether they're concrete or abstract for the purposes at hand. Uh, it seems like a, a view like that favours the possibility first approach. Um, magical ersatzism, where worlds are unstructured abstract entities, kind of points in a possibility space. Um, on this kind of view, all of the uh, structure to modal space is given instead as um, via a kind of primitive relation of representing, such that <coughs> it's just primitively true that this uh, unstructured world represents that such and such is the case, and it's just primitively true that this other unstructured world represents that uh, the other thing is the case. And here the extra complexity um, is going to be in the these sets of representation relations. Uh, the more possibilities there are, uh, the more structure there needs to be in those primitive relations. So I think this also is going to favour the possibility first approach. So it'd be nice if we could just go down every theory of modality and read off which approach it favours. Um, even in this kind of somewhat uh, rough and ready way that I've been doing. But I don't think we can in general do that. Uh, other approaches, other theories of the nature of modality give uh, much less straightforward verdicts. And the least straightforward of all is, is going to be modalism, the view that the modal operators are just pieces of primitive ideology. The box and diamond are just basic elements of our theory. We can't uh, analyse them in terms of anything else. Um, so then you want to say that um, kind of statements involving the box and the diamond are going to uh, constitute um, you, your theory of your kind of substantive theory of modal facts of what is and isn't possible. Um, but it seems like those statements can be expressed. Uh, either with just the box or with just the diamond or with some mixture of the two because you can interdefine the two using negation. And this seems to produce pressure to deny uh, that the question is substantive about whether the facts, the fundamental modal facts are about possibility or about necessity given modalism. It seems like um, 
uh, it's a kind of notational uh, choice how you want to express them. So it looks like a non-substantive question. Um, and if so, then it just doesn't seem like modalism barely's away on the question of possibility and necessity first. Likewise, uh, linguistic hazatsists have their theory of modality being uh, based on a primitive predicate of consistency between sets of sentences. Um, but again, it seems like they could equally well use a different primitive notion of inconsistency applied to the same sets of sentences. And statements about the consistency of a certain set of sentences seem to be, intuitively speaking, statements about what's possible. Um, uh, statements about inconsistency seem to be statements about what's impossible. Um, the thought is that uh, depending on which, whether you take consistency or inconsistency as primitive, uh, you might favour one or the other approach. Though right now, uh, that's not seeming as, as obvious to me as it was earlier. It seems that neither modalism nor linguistic hazatsim is going to allow us to tell conclusively in favour of uh, possibility or necessity first approaches. You could uh, kind of use brute force to make them, to, to uh, have your metaphysics tell in favour of possibility first and necessity first, even if you're modalist or linguistic hazatsis. And the way, the obvious way to do that is to endorse the kind of extreme realism about uh, what Sider calls metaphysical structure, described in this uh, recent book of his writing, The Book of the World. So his predicate is structural, gets to attach to expressions of any grammatical category. So you can say uh, that mass and charge are structural because um, they're the kind of fundamental properties. You can also say that uh, the operator of conjunction and disjunction are fundamental. In fact, you might want to say that conjunction is more fundamental than disjunction. That would be the, ca the kind of thing that Sider would want to use his ideology to say. And likewise, you could, if you wanted to, I'm not sure Sider does, well, I'm, I'm really not sure what he thinks about this, actually, uh, say that uh, the box is more structural than the diamond, or vice versa. And if you do, and, which, and if you did think that, say, the box was structural and the diamond was just defined via the box, that would seem to give you some pressure towards a necessity-first approach, and uh, vice versa. So if you believe, if you, if you buy realism about structure, then, uh, you're able to isolate modal methodology entirely from these kind of first order questions about the metaphysics and modality, um, choosing your theory, modalism, asaticism, or whatever. So that, that's somewhat inconclusive. And another source of, uh, inconclusiveness comes from the possibility that you might have kind of ascetic uh, or um, other idiosyncratic uh, considerations overruling uh, the guidance of your background theory of modality when it comes to this necessity first, possibility first uh, question. Um, so lots of people don't like the idea of necessary connections. Um, between things that seem to be distinct existences. Uh, Hume didn't like it, obviously, and, and Lewis also um, seemed to have a kind of aesthetic distaste for necessary connections. 
And so although I've suggested that uh, Lewis's model realism actually fits better with a uh, possibility-first approach, um, Lewis explicitly treats uh, quiddityism as the default position and hexaitism also as the default position. And that seems to indicate that he was favouring a necessity-first approach. Um, and he says a couple of things that I've quoted here. Quiddistic distinctions, quiddistic distinctions between possibilities seem offhand to make sense. And he says, although I could combine realism about possible worlds with antiquidityism, why should I want to? So these distinctions seem offhand to make sense and uh, we need to be given a positive reason to adopt uh, antiquidityism. That seems like a necessity first approach. And my hypothesis is that it was the ascetic distaste for necessary connections that overrode the uh, tendency of the metaphysics of modal realism towards the possibility first approach. And a, it's useful to compare this to the question of whether uh, modal realists should recognize indiscernible worlds. Um, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very similar question indeed, really. Lewis was officially agnostic about whether uh, there are indi indi indiscernible worlds. It seemed like that's something that kind of methodological considerations should uh, tell against. Um, it's not clear that we, we need these indiscernible worlds for anything, and the theory there are indiscernible worlds involves positing just more worlds. Um, but he was agnostic about it, and I'm I, I speculating that he was kind of torn here. Could see that there was some kind of methodological pressure towards the simplest available theory that could account for the data, but he was loath to um, uh, get rid of apparent possibilities, um, things that we could possibilities that seemed offhand to be possible. Um, without good reason. And agnosticism seems like a reasonable response in cases where you have uh, um, motivations or intention with one another. Okay, so just uh, summing all that up, uh, the epistemological argument is nowhere near as weak as Schaffer claims it to be um, because of these differences between what our access to the quidistic subject matter would be like versus what our access to the external world subject matter is like. But it's still indecisive because uh, quidditists can just accept the conclusion of the argument or because they can give some kind of uh, positive acquaintance-based um, uh, epistemology for how we acquire the quidistic knowledge. Most quidditists don't seem to give any such positive quidistic epistemology, um, but uh, they could do. So the epistemological argument is, is indecisive. They're not, it's not as bad as Schaeffer thinks. Um, is the methodological argument any better? Well, it looks better at first, but there are ways to resist it. Um, and in particular, we can resist it by adopting a version of quiddityism that doesn't involve any commitment to quiddities uh, and combine it with an account of modality that is uh, either friendly to a necessity-first approach or somewhat neutral. So um, it seems like you've got at least three kind of packages of views that can escape both of these arguments against quiddityism. Uh, you can combine 
um, modal is more linguistic ersatzism with uh, either the rejection of this Siderian structure predicate or with the view that um, uh, the uh, box is at least as fundamental as the diamond. Um, or you can just adopt something like a uh, side of neo-conventionalism, which directly seems to favour the necessity-first approach. Um, so if you adopt any of those packages of views, then you'll have a theory of modality which is uh, not in tension with the necessity-first approach, and you can use the necessity-first approach uh, um, to argue that quiditism is the default position. And in fact, it is uh, no theoretically more complex than antiquiditism, or even uh, theoretically simpler than antiquiditism. So, no no conclusive arguments to be found for and against quiditism that are neutral on these wider questions in the metaphysics of modality. Uh, if we want to uh, kind of, if we want to decide. Um, Quiditism debate, we're probably going to have to uh, at least partially settle uh, these wider issues in the uh, theory of modality first. Okay. Thank you very much.